This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Suvi Rautio, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we are joined by linguist, anthropologist, and interdisciplinary ethnographer in the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at Zhejiang University, Professor Jay Kurschert. Jay is joining me to talk about his book, Anglocene, Compromised Personhood in Afro-Chinese Translations, published in 2023 by University of California Press. Anglocene examines Afro-Chinese interactions within Beijing's aspirationally cosmopolitan student class. Jay Koshut explores the ways in which contemporary interactions between Chinese and African university students are mediated through complex intersectional relationships with whiteness, the English language, and cosmopolitan aspiration. At the heart of these tensions, a question persistently emerges. How does English become more than a language and whiteness more than a race? Engaging in this inquiry, Koshit explores 21st century Afro-Chinese encounters as translational events that diagram the discursive contours of a changing transnational political order one that will certainly be shaped by African and Chinese relations. I will be discussing the book in more detail with Jay Koshut, who I have the pleasure of joining me on the show today. Jay, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Suvi. Um, This is such a tremendous honor and pleasure. I enjoy this podcast very much. I've listened to a few uh, uh, episodes of it, so I'm, I'm fabulously honored to be here. I'm honored to have you here. Um, so to begin the show, as we usually do, um, I want to ask you about what led you to study African educational migrants in China. So I think I should start by saying that, you know, I, I myself am a South African. Um, and uh, initially, my encounter with these, the types of students that, that you, you see me engaging in the book, obviously I don't only talk about African students, but also their, their Chinese interlocutors, um, student peers and, and, and teachers. Um, but my entry point was initially actually being in Johannesburg 
and teaching a variety of of African students in the context of of a, of, of South African universities, um, students from all over Africa, not only South African students, um, and in sort of uh, advanced English language programs and things like that. Um, this was before I became a graduate student in the U.S. Um, when I when I uh, uh, initially um, applied to graduate school, what I I applied to do was to study the consumption of Korean soap operas in Zimbabwe. And in in many ways, the student community that that was my entry point into this question um, around 2009, 2010, switched their personal interests from, you know, the consumption of the Korean wave, the Hallyu, as it is, commonly known. Um, and uh, they all started going to Confucius Institutes to uh, to um, uh, take advantage of the expanded uh, opportunities to go and, go and study in China through Confucius Institutes and, and these sorts of educational initiatives in Africa. Um, so in a sense, it was a question of trying to stick to my initial graduate program or to take a leap of faith and actually just uh, uh, in, in, in those uh, prophetic words, follow the people as it were. <laughs> you know? So um, I decided to, 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 to go along with many of the African students to China and to enroll as uh, another student in, in, a, in a Chinese university context and sort of explore the encounter between African students and their Chinese peers as somebody who is 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 also trying to um, inhabit at least that educational position, and so it, I would say that rather than it being a, f- a fully conscious, rational choice uh, initially, it was a matter of um, a piecemeal, method-like commitment <laughs> to inhabiting a subjectivity. You know, so if uh, if if uh, anthropologists are like like actors, I guess I, 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 I you could call it a bit of a method-style anthropologist. <laughs> you know? um, I don't know if as I get older this is going to be easier, but uh, <laughs> we shall see. That's so fascinating. I had no idea that. Um, I mean, Jay, I've known you probably six, seven years. I had no idea that that you had a different um, initiative before before what you ended up doing for your PhD. And I wonder if that's something that's going to come up again, you know, later, or maybe if it did come up, you know, different times during your research, because obviously people's interest in soap operas don't necessarily disappear. But in the Absolutely. Anglo scene itself, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in Anglo scene, um, <laughs> you investigate um, or you study this African and Chinese students' language and race-mediated interactions in the universities within Beijing's higher educational district, Haidian. Can you provide some background information to help our listeners contextualize your book? Who are the African educational migrants you grew to know and the Chinese ones, as you just mentioned, you were also working with faculty and Chinese students? Um, and what kinds of aspirations did, did um, these students and, 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 um, and the other interlocutors you got to know, what did they bring with them to China um, in, these edu- in these university spaces? Okay, so this is actually a really great question because it actually allows an entry point into a, a few different things. But I think a good point to start with is why one would be interested in in studying educational migrants as opposed to other kinds of migrants. And there's a very important difference there. You know, like with um, 
with perceptions of migrants and migrancy, like it, whether it's China or, or Europe, you know, there's often this idea of the terminal migrant, right? A person who is a migrant and they are unable to to move beyond that position. Now we use that term, but it's actually cryptotypically suggests a sort of classed uh, position of outsiderness, you know, and, and it is usually one where um, it, it we, we perceive these, these folks by virtue of their mobility to be somehow trapped, which is kind of an interesting contradiction, right? Um, but with educational migrancy, it's an interesting type of thing because we expect in our in our valuations of of education generally especially cosmopolitan education as a kind of um commensurative space-time through which we become somebody else or transform that we expect that type of migrant not to be terminally terminally a migrant but to to change or transform somehow through the educational initiative one year, two year, three years of education is supposed to make you a new person in in, in, in in some ways. So what one's dealing with when you are dealing with something like a like an educational migrant is a type of migrant who is actually expected to change. So there was, is already the the weight of expectation to to transform somehow. So transforming into what becomes the, the kind of question for, for, for a lot of these migrants. Now, if you have educational mi- African educational migrants going to, let's say, Europe or Oxbridge and the Ivy Leagues, you know, these sorts of spaces, there is already some kind of notion of what that um, subject is supposed to become or who that subject is supposed to become. Um, who that subject was supposed to become in the in the Chinese context was not so clear. And that's why it became a really compelling um, research question. Because African subjects had to kind of think about who they wanted to be in the absence of an icon of personhood as to what the, the, the end product of a Chinese education should look like. And in a sense... Um, it was curious watching the movement of African students into, into the Chinese space, trying to improvise the idea or improvise with the idea of an alternative Chinese modernity, and then often either being disappointed or inspired by their Chinese interlocutors who themselves, uh, this many Chinese students, seem to be committed to Western uh, educational modernity. Make, leading a lot of African students to ask, you know, why did I come all the way here if you are going there? <laughs> you know? um, uh, so that's that's pretty crucial, I think, in in these interactional dynamics. Thank you. That was great, and that really was a fantastic entry point because that that really highlights a lot of the the key. Um, themes that you're studying in your book. Um, the book itself is divided into two parts, personhood and compromise. And the first three chapters, you describe personhood through a discursive approach that takes into consideration Sino-African post-socialist and post-colonial translations. And translations is really key here. In chapter one, you describe the Anglo-Scene and its pragmatic dimensions through chronotopes, signs and icons of value. Can you give our listeners a brief overview of how the broader domain of the Anglo-Scene and the English language entails particular affordances of subjectivity? That's great. I mean, I, I think you're also picking up on on the the, the tension here with the the um, translational analytic, as I use it in the in in the book, right? Um, so. 
if we want to understand the Anglocene and 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 language in operation in or let's let's say Anglocene as a as a kind of space time that encompasses signs of language and racialization and certainly um, intersectional affordances you know with, with within it. What we need to understand is 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 how signs are put together, in 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 that sense. And I I think the analytic of the chronotope, which is drawn from ba- uh, Mikhail Bakhtin, uh, a, a Russian semiotician and um, theorist of, of of language and history, um, in a sense becomes a really important consideration when we think about translation in general. Translation when we think in its uh, language metaphors, right? You're thinking of converting them, converting meanings from one thing into another. There's a sort of one, two kind of thinking in, in, in that. But what we forget is that in order to transform any meaning or to create sort of a conception of what, a, what, a, what, what, what one meaningful set means in another context, you actually need a third space. You sh- you need to create a third space, which is that space of translation. Um, some people have referred to it even as a you need a third language, which is a, a trans language, something through which the meanings of one thing become intelligible in the context of another. And that's that's a really interesting type of proposition because let's say uh, the metaphor that that one could use is how would you communicate squares in a world of triangles right um you could arrange the triangles in a square you know but that can, that that requires a conception of the arrangement of things outside of both of those contexts of translation so um uh, the other the other way we talk about it is like a, a a matrix in a target language if you are the matrix language is the one you're trying to translate target language is what you're trying to translate it into um and for this very reason i mean post-colonial theorists have been concerned for a very long time with the idea that um when you're engaging in any translational act it is not only the the context into which you are translation translating that changes, but it is the trans the the context of translation that 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 changes too, and it's for this reason it's for the 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 the, the fact of that third space of translation that is necessary um, in in that sense. So if we're looking at Anglo-Scene, it is neither English nor is it race, but it is signs of Englishness and raceness as they become used or pragmatically recruited in social interaction. So in that sense, I'm also going against the, the translational intuition that, that there's, so there's an alternative translational intuition and it's that because things cannot be translated, therefore translation is invalid or, or nihilistic in some ways. I would challenge a lot of that type of um, bourgeois thinking um, in the context of especially multilingual countries and multilingual nations within which um, people actually have to commit to translation even if it fails every day. Um, so we have to take the pragmatics of translation really seriously in, 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 in a lot of these types of social interactions. Um, and for that reason, as, as incomplete and as perspectival as something like an Anglo-Scene seems, um, it is nonetheless a useful category uh, to think with when we try to um, understand what the proposition of English does and the potential worlds it permits a recruitment into an interaction. Thank you so much, Jay. That was 
That was really fascinating. And it reminded me of one of the quotes that you, I mean, I have it written down here, one of the quotes from, from the first chapter, which you, which you highlight. Um, China must often work through English translation when engaging other non-Western interlocutors. I thought this was really, this was really crucial and something that I'd never really considered, even though I spent the majority of my life in China, I'd never really thought of it in that way. So thank you so much for <laughs> for really yeah. um, bringing this to my perspective. But but actually, you're picking up on something there, Suvi, because I mean, this this goes back to um, you know, uh, this wasn't actually going to come up in, in in this talk today, but it goes back to the Bandung moment to a certain extent. We forget that in the 1950s, you know, like when the non-Western world was decolonizing and engaging in discussions with one another about what that decolonization should look like, that English was very much on the table as a non-white expedient register of exchange. <laughs> you know? um, as, it's, as, as long as white bodies are not present in that sort of situation, you know, English is, is very useful for subjects who are trying to communicate with one another um, in, in, a, in a sort of decolonial space-time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for bringing that historical um, element as well, which you do also you do unpack in in the introduction. At least it's it is relevant to 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 the study. Um, so let's move on to chapter two. Um, can you tell us a bit about some of the ways that the Anglo scene is sustained performatively through an intersectional domain that takes gender, race, and mobility into consideration? Okay, so. The intersectional domain was was something that, like, I found almost something that could not be ignored in 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 my field in my field site, and also in in let's say in a lot of um, contemporary recruitments of of liberalism as not necessarily an emancipatory political horizon, but actually a classed horizon of aspiration, um, where. You know notions of of immense, Im, Im, the the gender emancipatory possibilities of of let's say um, uh, the the figure that comes up in that chapter is is, is Cheryl Sandberg. You know the lean in sort of moment. Um, when you have this type of proposition being circulated in a, a context in China where um, a very curated language of um, uh, gender equality has certain class dynamics, it necessarily excludes every single other vector of inequality. So that you actually find, and, and this is sort of beyond the scope of the book, but, but something that came up a, a lot during the field work, um, you actually find a lot of, let's say, working class um, uh, uh, Chinese, Chinese women feeling highly excluded by this kind of register, which is almost always, even when it's in Chinese, it still cryptotypically proposes um, English language-based uh, notions of, 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 of um, uh, uh, lean-in or, or um, capitalist uh, feminist discourses, you know, in, in in a way that's very exclusionary, not only to uh, working class women, but also ethnic minority women who are um, class stratified in, in this very context. So a way in which commitment to one horizon of identity ultimately excludes one from a number of other, other vectors of it. This seems extremely close to what um, 
Kimberly Crenshaw was speaking about in her famous Mapping the Margins essay, as well as the uh, discussion of intersectionality before it, the 1989 essay. Um, So in in a sense, this was a point of engagement and it allowed me an opportunity to think about, um, uh, well, uh, more recently, uh, myself and, and a collaborator, Josh Babcock, brought out a, um, a, a special issue on on the semiotics of intersectionality, and another one we're going to bring out in, in in the Journal of Linguistic Anthropology. But it was that moment in the in chapter two, actually, that that prompted me down the road, uh, or, or, or prompted me to think. Um, in terms of, um, how should I put this? The interactional um, dynamics of of intersectionality, as as Kimberly Crenshaw lays it out. So, Crenshaw's in Crenshaw's famous essays, right? You know, she's actually thinking about the context of American legal reform and the ways in which vectors of identity operate within the American juridical system, right? One vector that is not considered in that because America is largely uh, constituted as a, as a kind of monolingual public, even if there are a number of different languages in operation in the US, right? Um, language is never considered as, as one of the intersectional vectors. But if you go to places like China or, you know, certainly places like India and South Africa, language is super important as a, as a, as an identity stratifier. You know, um, you, you, you are, you are as marked in many of these places through, through how you use language and what languages you are able to access and, and how you pronounce or speak them as you are by the color of your skin or, uh, the ways in which you might be un- understood to have a sexual or gender identity. Um, so, the question becomes why is language so peculiarly left out in anglocentric settings and it actually takes going to the periphery of that type of question to see it you need to go to a place like china and ask well language is such an issue here in a country that that like I'm, i wouldn't say 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 um china is like the 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 poster you know, the poster child for like multilingualism is actually not a very multilingual kind of, in, and the multilingualisms that exist are largely formulated through the, the publics of Putonghua. But even in Putonghua, there is a notion that Chinese is a language among languages and that languages are, are stratified in relation to one another. Whereas there is an, a total almost Lockean erasure of this concept in, in much of the Anglosphere. Um, so yeah, in, entering um, language as a vector of intersectionality was a was a really key consideration in the, in that chapter, and also showing how what see, what might seem to be emancipatory horizons of unmarked aspiration ultimately come come to compromise the very subjects who are unable to escape being marked in 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 that uh, representational economy. Um, this moves us to the next chapter, um, the third chapter, which I, in, in addition to all the other chapters, but I really, I really thoroughly enjoyed this one. Um, it's called "Who Can Be a Racist?" and you explore the role that humor and references to Oprah girls and Trevor Noah boys reveals the interplays between race and language, through what you describe as a PC theater the, theater of evaluation. So this is kind of a continuation of of what you were just telling our listeners about the kind of. Um, what liberalism, um, the, the workings of liberalism. Um, 
And you conclude by suggesting that, here I'm quoting you, the question of what racism can be and who can be a racist remains constrained by its still Anglo-centric medium of translation. Can you tell us a bit more about this, please, Jay? Sure. Um, Okay, so I was... um... I had a sort of different response for this in mind initially, um, but I was just reminded of the ways in which we can think about. Okay, so um, Anglo-centric liberalism, okay, is a really key consideration here. So a lot of folks would would, especially in the US, where I did my graduate studies, and as a sort of folk intuition, would understand liberalism to be a sort of transcendent political theology in a sense, you know, as much as, as anything else is, you know, but it, it is highly marked in terms of its linguistic features so that even when subjects invoke it outside of that context or outside of an English context, they none, nonetheless often invoke many of these terms with, uh, an, 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 an Anglosphere or Anglo-scenic context in mind, you know, um, so that, to the degree that when subjects want to, and I've certainly seen this in, in the South African context um, and the Chinese context, when subjects want to deviate from liberalism, a language switch is a very effective way of doing that because it's already assumed that the 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 um, appropriate politically correct publish public of English is a very different one from an appropriately politically correct public in in another language. Um, so that when subjects want to indulge in um, racist or gendered or misogynistic speech, um, recourse to another language is, is a quick way to do that. Um, and, and, and when criticisms emerge, they're like, oh, but, you know, it's not the same thing you know, as, as this sort of alienate, ultimately alienating liberal domain of English, you know, to, to a large extent. So try to account for the ways in which there is a linguistic particularity and a sort of chronotopic particularity to, to liberal discourse, even in places where, you know, the, the presiding language ideology itself is not expected to be English, you know, was a sort of key consideration you know, how do we teleport a liberal public into an interaction? And the question of who can be racist emerges um, particularly prominently because it 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 it, it suggests that like um, uh, considerations of liberalism are far from unmarked, and ultimately, in subjects' recruitments of of liberal ideologies in their actions um, as a as a register of of um, uh, uh, bringing in this this horizon of unmarkedness or unmarked subjectivity, ultimate end up hypermarking themselves in that through that interaction. Um, so in that in that chapter, you have several instances of of subjects invoking politically correct language and uh, contesting politically correct language um, in a context outside of the West, but certainly in terms of that horizon of aspiration that has English characteristics. Thank you so much, Jay. Um, okay, let's move on to the fourth chapter. Um, and this is the beginning of the second theme of your book, um, Compromise. So we've moved from personhood to compromise. And here you go beyond spoken language to consider the translational technology in Afro-Chinese encounters through the mass and socially mediated recruitment of nature as metaphor. 
The Anglocene becomes a zone of translation and site for the alienating collaboration of affective fields of sensual and social life. Can you tell us a bit more about this through the metaphor of nature, which you describe through ethnography in, in your chapter? That's great. Because the question there, right, in, in that particular chapter was one of how, how nature is, is racialized and how race or racial difference is um, construed through that category of, of, of nature to a certain extent, right? So it emerged in the fieldwork when a subject, a Chinese ethnographic subject, was referring to, to African subjects' closeness to nature in a kind of romantic sense. Um, now, when confronted with this ethnographic vignette, a number of sinologists read it and thought to themselves, Oh my goodness! But this is this is this is not racism at all. This is merely just you know somebody like um, attributing um, um, aesthetically appropriate natural naturalistic features as a contrast to you know robotic Chinese society in 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 some sense. So ultimately, being close to nature is a good thing, you know, in this sort of scenario. But I had to take a sort of seek reference, and I think uh, this. So this is on around. Sorry, I'm going to take recourse to the book around uh, page 119, 120. Let me quickly pull it out. So the How, t- how Paper Tigers Kill chapter, right? Um, it's on, yeah, on page 122, uh, where I look at um, um, an extract in Michael Sullivan's discussion of an infamous letter to African embassies in Beijing sent on behalf of the Chinese Students Association in 1989. It is an example that demonstrates this cryptotypic articulation of race and nature um, handily. So in this um, 1989 letter, uh, the the, um, Chinese Students Association wrote the following. China, whose thousand-year glory and cultural tradition is ineffaceably written in the history of mankind stands today because of the great Xiaoping's merit in front of a new historical prime. We are walking towards our great aim on a broad road opened to the advanced and civilized world. It doesn't mean, however, that we will feed the whole uncultured Africa with the results of our efforts, and we will allow any Negro to hang about our universities to annoy Chinese girls and to introduce on our academic grounds manners acquired by life in tropical forests. Um, offending our traditional hospitality and broad-mindedness. If there will be no correction in the behavior of idling black students, new and even harder lessons of friendship will follow. They, these lessons, will be based on the experience of Americans who know very well what to do to curb the Negroes in their country. I mean, even in 1989, like the association of nature and African subjects or black subjectivity is a far from benign and romantic consideration. Now, I mean, if a, a lot of uh, scholars do, do seek recourse to Qing and Ming texts, you know, um, but I would argue that signs are not consistently, you know, um, they, they don't they don't signify one thing at a time, like all the, all the time, you know, in, in, in a fundamental sense. So the association of, of nature and blackness could be construed in benign ways, but it can certainly be construed in the types of violent ways that we see here. And so a large part of the book, and I think a large part of my critique of a lot of contemporary Sinology is to situate um, China in the world, 
where Chinese subjects in their attitudes and relationships to others do conceptualize the world as a participation framework, particularly um, a, a highly mediated society like that of the US, you know, um, ways in which uh, uh, sort of uh, white racist tropes are translated into Chinese by a, a number of highly masculinist Chinese netizens, uh, also m- m- uh, certain forms of misogynistic turn, you know, in the trolling of, 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 of female activists in China, you know, these are not these are not quintessentially emerging from like the the deep archive of 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 historical Chinese experience. They are also in I mean they are that and they are engaging um, a, a, a world beyond China. So China is as much in the world as the world is in China in in in, in many of these terms. So I would I would I would um, warn against the easy relativisms within which we read these associations in the, the let's say, sinological archive in, in, in China. Yeah. So that was the purpose of that chapter to a large extent. I'm, a, I'm so happy that you picked up on that because it, it was something that, was, um, that has been a, a, a very prominent bugbear on the job market uh, before, I, before the book came out. I I encountered a lot of hostility in sinological audiences who claimed that there was no there was no racism in China, (laughs) and that blackness and nature were not an association worthy of consideration. Um, So, uh, thank you (laughs) for that entry point. It's it's um it's remarkable that 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 um some that that you would be faced with this. I mean, in any circumstance, obviously, but especially in the job market, especially considering the number of years you've committed to, to studying the topic, and also um you being an African in in China, um you know seeing it from a completely different perspective and then people telling you, you know, first of all, being a South African in in South Africa, but then removing yourself from that as well, um. To be confronted with that that kind of comment just seems um, very surprising. <laughs> Shocking. It's surprising, but but it it indicates the binaristic ways in which disciplines like sinology have been constructed. It must be a West and its others kind of conception, or it must be a China versus America conception. There's no there's no one outside of that participation framework is so prominently the um, the the assumption you know in 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 there. Uh, whereas the world is a very big place, I would say to both of these <laughs> sets of audiences. Um, and if the world is a very big place, maybe the the gestures and signs we assume to have canonical meanings are somewhat more nuanced within a very vast space time. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. Thank you for that, and thank you for for referring straight from your book. That's it's it's so I feel it's, it's such a privilege to have the author speak direct, like quote from from the book. It's it's really it was it was just really pleasant to listen to you read. Um, okay, let's move on to chapter five. Um, this one is titled uh, Ubuntu and Guanxi. Chapter five ethnographically explores the pragmatics of translation between Ubuntu and Guanxi. Can you tell us a bit more about the pragmatics of translation of these terms and why is an important empirical starting point to decolonizing the study of non-Western, non-Anglocentric interactions? Okay, that's great. Um, And we did sort of touch on this 
earlier on in thinking about the 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 Anglo scene and its relationship uh, and its imbricated relationship between English and and language. But um, I want to sort of uh, explore this a little bit more deeply. So. What I meant to say, and and what I meant to say by by the the pragmatics of translation is is very much um, a move, and and I, I think I sort of set it up in that in that chapter. Um, it's very much a move against what I would call uh, the the maybe the root of the problem, you know, is semanticism around translation. So. If we understand the conventional position in the social sciences around an analytic of translation, um, it's it's usually one where translation is something that we're trying to define, right? Translation is X or translation is Y, you know, or translation is not, you know, to a certain extent, um, or uh, translation is semantically impossible uh, in, in that sense, therefore unuseful, you know, and in, in that sense. Um, or like uh, in a lot of these cases, they often find themselves in a, in a peculiar scenario we, where they need to presume translation in order to define it, right? Which is obviously the, the usual, the usual sort, of, sort of problem semantically. By a pragmatics, what we're doing is rather than presuming A, what translation is, uh, and B, uh, entering into the hall of mirrors where um, anything can become everything or not, you know, um, in, 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 a, in a sort of, um, let, let's call it analytical or, or, or semantic debate. What we're looking, what we're sort of asking is like, well, what do the affordances of, of, of translation do? Because it turns out people make use of translation. People translate. They actually do do this thing that we are we are referring to now we can we can presume what it means or we can look what they are doing with this thing we call translation there is indisputably something called translation that people refer to in their everyday lives as they are doing it um no amount of of metaphysical jargon is going to alienate subjects from these acts and activities you know to to a large extent um Subjects are also in this process going to notice things like cultural terms or cultural difference. Now, the two subjects in that chapter, um, Professor Lee and um, uh, uh, I think it's, is it Patrice in, in, in that chapter? You know, th- in, in both cases, they are trying to use culture concepts like Guanxi and Ubuntu. Um, neither of them is an anthropologist, an expert in cultural terms, um, nor nor is either of them, you know, uh, a, a sort of like entering into the deep archives of how these concepts and terms were constructed through through ethnographic or anthropological knowledge. They are using these as common sense terms that nonetheless are have an enduring meaning for them as 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 semiotic objects in the world that define a certain kind of behavior, right? And for that reason, they pragmatically engage in acts of translation. These are, unless one is um, truly so alienated from, from, from social life that one uh, interprets every single social interaction as, as, as purely rational types of activities that require like narrow definitions of every single concept and term, which most people are not, um, 
you are you are probably going to hedge a translation in the ways that uh, Patrice and Professor Lee are, are are doing here, and it's trying to account for the ways in which it's actually this kind of again piecemeal activity ultimately is is the the it, it and and certainly anthropologists or historians or sort of any kind of sort of cultural curator will look at their behavior and say, but this is neither Guanxi nor Ubuntu. Ultimately, it's subjects like these that sustain the meanings of these terms as meaningfully anthropological concepts for us. It is subjects who are reflexively and pragmatically making use of cultural ideas and terms that sustains our study of them, which in a weird way is a, is a sort of um, I mean, it's not it's not 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 in a weird way. I guess it's it's a way of bringing our discussions back to to the pragmatics of interactions within which anthropology's cultural terms emerge. Um, a sense in which we're trying to make anthropo- anthropological thought relevant, you know, in contexts where it could so easily be um, branded as romantically culturally appropriative type of as a romantically culturally appropriative type of discipline. You know, we are showing like there there is a real there is a real impetus for for anthropology anthropology's sort of um, cultural sensitivity, particularly in situations where guess what everybody's a, 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 um, an expert on culture these days, except from anthropologists. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just to just for our listeners who might not be familiar with these terms, Guanxi and Ubuntu, can you just very briefly um, tell the listeners what what are they referring to, or what are what are Mr. Lee and, and Patrice referring to um, in in your in your chapter? So. In a more generalistic sense, um, and in I, I would I would focus on how they are defining the terms as subjects who are yes, using them exactly. to, a, to a certain extent. Yeah. We're dealing with with um, an intersubjective um, sensibility of assuming that um, uh, through through a through a through a um, interhuman connection between between a subject. Um, I can only be somebody through others. Now, this is not a strange idea, really. I mean, it's it, it emerges, I mean, even in, in sort of um, narrow social science context uh, through the work of somebody like Irving Goffman, you know, his understanding that you could perform who you are all you like, but it requires somebody on the other end to ratify your performance, to allow you to be who you want to be. You know, and this is at the heart of, of, of Gyatri Spivak's Can the Subaltern Speak?, it's not necessarily about the subaltern's ability to say words or make sounds with them. It's actually about the capacity for those words to be heard and understood and contextualized, because otherwise there is no sub- subject position to speak of. You may as well be discursively obliterated in an action, in an interaction, if your interlocutor is not willing to recognize and ratify who you are. It's largely what's at stake in the politics of pronouns, which somebody like Jordan Peterson does not really understand. Um, uh, You actually need affordances for understanding in order for a subject position to emerge, not just the mere performance of them, because it's, it's the old tree falling in a forest type of uh, philosophical question there, you know. Um, but Guanxi and Ubuntu 
are explicit um, cultural concepts and terms drawn uh, respectively from China and um, uh, uh, Southern and broad and a lot of African contexts, but but broad, but in my context, I'm using the sort of Southern African word for it, Ubuntu or Ubuntu, you know, uh, to refer to. Um, uh, th- this kind of of sensibility of uh, being somebody through others, and the ways in which this presumes um, uh, the building of social relations, the the maintenance of ethical um, uh, uh, obligations between people towards one another, and it manifests itself through gift giving, um, through uh, intersubjective leverage, and even through slightly more. Uh, darker iterations, um, bullying and intersubjective sub- subterfuge. But nonetheless, um, Guanxi and Ubuntu are, are are great cultural concepts for 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 picking up on this intersubjective contingency that 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 subjects have in relation to one another. Thank you so much for that clar- clarification. Um... Such a such a fascinating concept, and and I'm guessing a lot of our listeners will be able to um, kind of resonate with that. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense that we 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 recognize who you we are according to who's if we get that recognition from others, or depending on who's listening, depending on who's watching. Um, and I liked how you're kind of weaving that through Goffman's theory as well. And Spivak's, you know, to a, to a large extent. I mean, this right, is Spivak, this is absolutely. Like- yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But but what's interesting there is is the ways in which, you know, like w- we say this is common sense, you know, to a large extent. When we say it like this, this it, it is commonsensical, yet so many of our of our um let's call it like large scale um uh, media regulation institutions have very peculiar understandings of communication and communicative encounter. You know, the idea, for instance, you know, like let's let's go at the most macro sort of level. If you go and look at, uh, and it's one of the examples I, I used to teach with, go look at the the NASA SETI program, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Right? Is there a single communications or or linguist person on that on that on that uh, uh, panel? No. Um, and the idea is largely that putting information on a golden disk and sending it out to space, like we're we're putting a lot of faith in the aliens' capacity to to decode, you know, even while our own social intuitions suggest that it takes a hell of a lot of context to get a message across. Right. You know? <laughs> That's such a fantastic example. <laughs> you know. We, at the sort of intersubjective, intuitive level, we all agree. But it turns out on our sort of macro-institutional levels, there's some very strange ideas about how communication works and, and, and society operates. Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, it's also, <laughs> we're expected, we're, we're, we're driven. I mean, a lot of um, kind of neoliberal institutions drive us to think forward in that way that, that we are, you know, the very individualistic, um, kind of more self-centered um subjectivity that doesn't necessarily um who knows who they are rather than is given that recognition from from their peers um yeah if we move on to the next chapter again i really enjoyed how you how you how you formed the chapter and i liked how you moved closer to the conclusion in 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 chapter 
six, I mean, it is the conclusion of your book, where you explicitly remind the reader how your ethnography, again, I'm quoting you, captures the ideological conditions that both obstruct and perpetuate the fantasy of equal opportunism, unquote. By linking it back to your own experiences as a South African in the American higher educational setting, I thought that this was just really, really fantastic and and also very moving. And and it was it was just you really you kind of you 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 show your own kind of sentimental side here, and it was just moving to read. Um, but um, you apply this through you you apply this um, your experiences. Um, looking at the political environment that that you that you saw unfolding around you from Obama from the Obama, Obama era to Trump's presidency and then later post Trump or, or what we are at the moment in at the moment, and one of my favorite quotes in the chapter is again I'm quoting you is whiteness in the ways I have demonstrated does not need white bodies. Can you expand on this statement? What does it mean so our listeners can understand? That's great, um, and it's also great that you picked up on that in 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 that in that chapter. I will also just as a as a sort of contextualizing move say that like doing a chapter like this is not something they will tell you to do in graduate school or uh, something they will tell you to do as part of your your ethnography, but it's something that I thought ethically I was compelled to do. I mean, if we really do embrace the sort of anthropological imperative of being reflexive. We should be reflexive about um, the, the, the ethnographic act, the, the, the act about writing itself. Because um, as I, I recently suggested to, to a class of, of, of students who are doing field methods, the field the field's place of beginning and ending is 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 not very clear. It's it's very ambiguous. But I would say a very good starting point is and ending point is the pen itself, um, because ultimately and 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 it sort of emerged of over years of of submitting um, drafts of papers and and whatever to to journals, right? And getting comments back about and often the I mean the comments take all kinds of forms and shapes as we know. But one thing that's really interesting is how reviewers, particularly in cultural anthropological um, journals or like broadly social science journals, will fixate on referring to vignettes and um, very curated ethnographic descriptions as empirical materials. And this is such an interesting language ideology because they're, they're not empirical like my field notes are or my recordings are or like the totality of the, the vast set of materials that have piled up that you're actually drawing these bits and pieces from in a, in a, and curating in a very um, particular sort of way. <laughs> you know, they're not, they're, um, they're not immediate in that sense. And yet the whole point of a vignette or the arrangement is to create the illusion of immediacy. So we should really be reflexive about the fact that this we're already at the analysis point here. We're already... We, we have already extracted something from experience, converted it into a paper model, and brought it into the paper world of the social sciences mediated through the Anglo-centric register of academic English to have a debate with other kinds of, of intellectual objects being modeled within that paper world. We, we have moved very far away from the empirical materials. That's not to say they're unempirical. It's, it's all empirical. But to make a di- but when you're presuming the division, 
what you're talking about is immediacy. And yes, they feel immediate, but they're not immediate at all. And ethically, this sort of compels us as, as ethnographers to say, like, look, the writing of this and the contextualizing of this and who I'm speaking to needs to be recognized. We need to break that fourth wall. If we're going to do it according to, to these sort of um, often emptily, uh, emptily voice, even if they're sanctimoniously um, framed uh, imperatives in ethnography, if we're really, really going to do that, um, then, then, then we must be reflexive about how and for whom we were writing this and under what conditions we were writing this. Um, the, these these materials. It is it is crucial. You you cannot cannot leave it out. Now, to get to to <laughs> to the 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 term that that emerged in there, whiteness uh, in the ways I've demonstrated does not that does not need white bodies. I mean, largely as a as a South African and being increasingly in these weird alienated spaces of of like working on race and black students in China and then encountering like the categories of identity and difference within the U.S. I increasingly found myself finding deep wisdom in African thinkers, you know, like um, like Fanon and 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 Steve Biko, Steve Biko. None of whom, like, they are often branded as subjects who are essentializing race. They understood the kind of epistemic weight of race in 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 many of these ways. They understood that 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 race presences itself, and that's somebody like Charles Mills too who's a severely underrated critical race theorist, you know, um, race presences itself in your life in different ways, depending on how you are situated into it. That does not mean you are that thing, you know, but you are made to be it, you know, in a, in a certain sense. But if you look at all of Fanon and Biko's examples, they're often examples of subjects who may not be, be white at all, you know, necessarily benefiting from, or drawing on the racial capital of whiteness in this sense. And if from that conceptual move, the racial capital of whiteness is portable, recruitable, um, and especially in it, it is so in places where, let's say, white bodies are not present, then it does suggest that you, know, you don't necessarily need white bodies in order to have whiteness. As a as a structuring um, ideology, let's say uh, in 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 this sense, you know the 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 weirdly narcissistic ethic where um, I recall a, a recent American social scientist was 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 uh, teaching a critical race class and explaining that you know like whiteness have done whites white subjects have done such terrible things that they just actually shouldn't reproduce and and shouldn't shouldn't be subjects in the world this is actually oddly quite racist not not against whites you know because it suggests that the only ways that that you'll ever defeat whiteness is if they commit sort of like suicide i'd be willing to admit that it, there wasn't a caucasian body in sight whiteness would still be a problem within these these dynamics of racial capital that that we see operating in in, in the world at present i would say even for for let's say right-wing white White subjects, and I've seen this in apartheid South Africa, particularly with Afrikaans subjects, um, my my own ethnic group, that a large part of the anti-black racism is uh, is 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 significant issues with not feeling white enough, with feeling like a waste of a white skin if you haven't significantly lived up to the unmarked potential of of, of white subjectivity. So, and the pursuit of unmarkedness itself is a is a is a, is a sort of cryptotypic. A pursuit of 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 the kind of um, racial capital where you no longer have to worry about being stratified 
um, through through race. That is an apex position. That is not a gender a general position of equity. <laughs> um, so let's always ask ourselves who are the subjects who can feel unmarked, you know, in 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 a in a social encounter. Those are subjects who do not have to worry about being stratified through how they appear or what their appearances or what kind of economy their appearances might be um, uh, uh, weaponized into. Yeah, I guess that's what I was getting at. <laughs> it's such a powerful message. I mean, it's just, and, and, and again, I really love how you kind of build up to that in your, in your final chapter. It's just, it's, it's really, the book is really beautifully compiled and the structure really works. Um, I mean, I can only imagine that that's something that required a lot of time and effort and thinking it doesn't, you know, but putting it together as structures is one of the most difficult elements of putting together the book itself that's true i would totally agree but i'm so i'm also so absolutely grateful that somebody picks up on these things and and says that you know because you know there's this there can be so many responses to it and and the responses you're like something oh shit you know that was exactly the reading i was trying to avoid you know but um Largely, I mean, like I'm, I'm kind of like just grateful that 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 folks like yourself are picking up on 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 these parts and 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 these dimensions of of, of what's being conveyed. So I can't thank you enough for for reading the book and and uh, <laughs> for engaging its ideas so eloquently. So yeah, no, I'm no, I'm extremely it's... grateful. It was my it was my pleasure, and and I can assure you, many other readers will also pick up on on these same points and many more. I'm not a linguistic anthropologist, so there was I struggled a lot with the with the with the linguistic anthropology stuff, and I'm, the technical bits were yeah. But but I mean, as I was saying, how you, you it's a beautiful flow, and it really does work, and the way it goes, you know, how you moving to the bigger argument or m- moving to that more familiar anthropological discussion of positionality and so forth. And then you really, you frame it in a way that's kind of, um, it's, it's just, it really fits and it's really smart because you're also putting it together through your own experiences in the American educational system and the political climate that you were, that, that you were living in America. Um, and so Many other readers will also pick up on that, I can assure you. Okay, great. Um, yeah. <laughs> but thank you. I really enjoyed the book. But before we finish today's show, I want to um, ask you about what you're working on and thinking about these days. I mean, Anglocene was, it just came out. I mean, it's 2023. So it's yeah. it came yeah. out, I think, January, February. Again, massive congratulations. And maybe this question's a bit too... too um, yeah, it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit too sudden, too abrupt. But what kind of what what have you been working on? I mean, you've you've been in China, you've been you've been teaching, but have you been able to pick up on any projects or or continue something that you've you haven't been able to commit to because Anglocene was taking up probably most of your working life until quite recently. Well, actually, you know, as if you if you. I mean, like thinking about Anglocene and and putting it out there, you know, it was sort of a strange experience because it been it has been a, a, a long time working on the book and 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 getting it out. Um, but from the ways in which I was situating myself in the book and thinking about the book, I, I've 
actually moved on to quite a number of different concerns, you know, also being a, a person who's working in China while doing research here. Um, my follow-up work is interestingly a little, a little different. Um, I would also say uh, readers of the next book will not be able to pick up so much on the, the types of um, enregistered linguistic uh, element as much. Uh, the next book is going to be about, um, and I'm loosely framing it around this title, we'll see it will undergo changes, um, Synesthetic China. And it's it's basically about the use of history, the pragmatics of history. So as we were talking about the sort of pragmatics of translation, the pragmatics of race, um, it's the ways in which heritage and history become usable and portable to to institutions, people, um, and uh, subjects trying to find a way to negotiate a very precarious world um, through through their synesthetic recruitments of, of historical objects and historical space-time in, in one way or another. So I'm working on some chapters and some ideas and some ethnographic concepts and trying to get some funding together for, for all of that. But um, thinking about, um, you know, like uh, Anglesey was thinking about, like, you know, how, how terms like, 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 how semiotic formations like uh, race and 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 language are, are stratified in contexts, um, recruiting time. I'm actually thinking about how um, time itself is rendered portable to us as 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 subjects, and how this has has very much stakes for our political engagements of every life, but just for our abilities to 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 live as a sort of time traveling species as humans. Human, the human as, as as time traveler, virtually or otherwise. That sounds so, <laughs> that, that sounds so fascinating. Um, I had no idea you were working on this, and um, I I can't wait to hear more about about the chapters you've already been compiling. What kind of material it's based around, and I'm sure our listeners also very much look forward to hearing more about how it unfolds. But for now, Jay, I want to thank you. Yeah. <laughs> for now, I want to thank you so much for putting time aside and, and, and joining me to talk about your work. It's been such a fascinating um, conversation. It's And it's such a thought-provoking book. Um, listeners, It's um, you can actually grab a um, you can get a free free access to the book itself on the University of California Press's open access uh, publishing program. So if you visit the is it the Luminos page www.luminosa.org, um, listeners will be able to access the the book in open access form. Absolutely, and that was really important, actually, for 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 me, um, especially as somebody who who works in in China and my my students and many of the publics that I had in mind when I was was writing the book were not American and European readers. I mean, these are are the subjects that usually are the the sort of target audiences for the big big presses, right? Um, uh, but they were Chinese and African students who don't often have like $30, $34 or something to spend on a book. So I was lucky that my institution, Zhejiang University, was willing to, um, you know, pay the subvention fee to get it to be open access um, and and downloadable by students um, in China and in, in, in the rest of the world alike, you know. Um, so there is a reason it, it it is open access and 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 why we're we're committed to doing this you know in, in many sense since the book was written precisely 
recruiting that, or as, and I'm sure you picked up on that in, in reading it, it was written precisely with that audience in mind. It was not just speaking to, to the Euro-American audience, um, but definitely to a, to a broader one. Absolutely. Well, massive shout out, big thank you to Zhejiang University. I mean, it's 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 so important that universities everywhere are supporting authors for open access, but especially um, in this case. Thank you, Zhejiang University. Thank you, Jay, for making this happen. <laughs> um, but thank you so much, Jay, for, for tuning in. It's been a pleasure. Um, I had so much fun. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sivi. You're a great host for this show. And uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed um, these questions. So engaged and uh, so connected with the material. You know, it's really, really was fabulous. Thank you. It's really been my pleasure to read it. Um, thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>